Stuff Podcasts. Warning, this podcast deals with racism, so expect explicit language. I was at Auckland Central. I thought, well, okay, I'm a policeman now. I've got to do my duty. And I saw our duty as bringing order and calm to what was really a a volatile country at that time. I was uh, on both sides, you know. I I mean, I was always anti-tour. I couldn't believe we were policing that type of thing. New Zealanders fighting against New Zealanders. How much pressure is there from South Africa's sporting community to change the country's race laws? Well, why must we do it? But that is a domestic affair which we will fight here among ourselves. Would you, under any circumstances, call off the tour of New Zealand? Why should I call it off? We've been invited to go to New Zealand, we've accepted it, and that's all that stands. My name's Wayne Tolliafor. I was the Minister of Information. My Panther number was 29. I did the right thing by pulling out of the Panthers, you know, and concentrating on my schoolwork. Cut myself off from all the other distractions. After the Panthers, I went to Samoa, you know, and taught in the high school over there. When I came back, I was thinking of, you know, what job can I do? My brother was in the police. He put his helmet on my head and he said, you'd look good in the police. (laughs) When I compared the wages of a teacher and the wages of a policeman, in 14 weeks time I could be earning 11,500, you know, compared to 8,500. And I got married as well, so I had a wife to think about. I'll join the cops, you know, just for the financial security. Little did I know that we were coming out at the most exciting time ever. The demonstrators arrived at the ground just a short while ago. They marched past the main gate. There's been no attempt at all by the police to move them off the field. The group standing in the middle of the pitch. families are part of a long line of people born and bred in the small islands of the South Pacific. But in the 1950s, our parents looked for a new life in Aotearoa, making us the first generation of New Zealand-born Pacific Islanders. But later, in the 1970s, when the economy faced challenges, some New Zealanders started to see our presence as a problem. Newspaper headlines claimed we were violent and dangerous. And the government said we took Kiwis' jobs. The government wanted us out. Like the Black Panther movement in the United States, we decided to seize the time. It was time to be heard. It was time to mobilise. It was time to fight back. We formed a Polynesian Panther Party.
Our aim was to strike at the core of racism and provide a voice for our community. But leading our people to fight for a fair and just society wasn't without sacrifice. This is our history. These are our words. One of the briefings we had in Auckland Central, just before a big protest, one of the Auckland commanders got up and he said, today is a different kind of protest. We're not just getting the professional protesters here, we've got the ordinary New Zealander coming out protesting. And for one thing, my wife and daughter will be in the protest. <laughs> he said, so be mindful of the fact that you're not dealing with uh, the professional protester. You're dealing with ordinary New Zealanders who are coming out and expressing themselves in this protest. I'm Mary Manata Montgomery. It was like living in a war-torn country where you weren't sure whether you were talking to the enemy or not. But every time there was a match, people actually were guarded about what they said. Particularly if you worked in the government department, you didn't say, I'm going to the march on, on Saturday because your superiors would have just given you a warning and you might have been on notice. He was uh, in the force. I confronted him out at the Mangere Hotel. Police were cordoning around the hotel. I was in the group that surrounded the uh, motel where the Springboks stayed. And uh, we were just there to protect the Springboks and keep the protesters away. And thousands of protesters turned out. Some of the Panthers were there. We went out there and protested and I just picked them out. One of them called me a, a turncoat and an Uncle Tom. Wayne, you stooly, you da, 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 let them have it. And I thought I expected better from them. There are a lot of cops who were anti-tour. And of course they'll do their duty, you know. But um, they can't move out of their uniform and, and object about apartheid. It was the same at Bastion Point. A lot of those Māori police and Pacific Islanders um, didn't want to be there. But, you know, you've still got to do your job, so you, you, you go in there and do the best that you can. But there was really, really a hot situation there. I saw a Pākehā couple in their 70s, I think, and the woman was just weeping. Are you all right? And they said, this is New Zealand. And I looked down the road and saw the thousands of protesters, police cars, and I thought, now I know what they mean. You know, it was just not the New Zealand we all knew. You see bad behaviour on both sides, you know, the protesters and, uh, the, and the anti, you know, who are throwing full cans of beer and that kind of thing at the protesters. 
you were in the middle and you thought, I'm just going to do my job. You're going to war. But the thing was, you're going to war against apartheid. The torture and brutality and all of that that they committed upon those people, families, women, children. We could see that coming here. And we're Pacific Islanders, we don't take that shit. Our history goes back thousands of years. We are the Neolithic that came out of Africa and travelled right around the world and ended up in places like Easter Island and Hawaii and Tahiti and all those. Our history is oral, so it's not written, but it's there in stone. When you look at these artefacts and monuments and flat nose, thick lips, where do they come from? So nobody could say, you know, you're just there for the hell of it and fight the police. No, apartheid is the beast. Apartheid is the bogey. If we don't deal to this, this country, we're done. We're not going to stand for that. So, okay, we'll do it together. I'm Trevor Richards, best known probably for being that mustachioed bastard. Chairperson of Heart. Heart was the Holt or Racist Tours movement. A lot of people try to talk about the anti apartheid movement in New Zealand in terms of what happened in 1981. I get a little bit pissed off because there was a hell of a lot of protest that went on before 1981. <laughs> New Zealand v South Africa. The game has been anticipated by the whole population and they've come from the bush, the towns and the plains. The first protests was in 1921 when they visited for the first time. In 1949 and 1960, we sent white teams claiming to be New Zealand teams. Māori, of course, weren't allowed to go. Tom Pearce, who was the manager he would stand up in South Africa and make speeches in Māori, and everyone was terribly impressed. The speeches would go something like Kaikoi, Wainui, Amata, Tauranga. It was, he was just listing the names of Māori places in New Zealand, and hey, hey. Our policy is one which is called by the Afrikaans word apartheid. Hart was involved in the campaign against the 1973 Springbok tour of New Zealand, which was cancelled after the tour was cancelled. There's a knock at my door. There's this youngish guy. He said, I've got something to tell you, and I don't want to tell you inside your house. The Security Intelligence Service had set up sophisticated electronic equipment next door to where I live to listen to all of the conversations in our house. Hart had a very involved campaign to try and stop the 1976 All Blacks going to South Africa. Africans require want the franchise on the basis of one man, one vote. They want political independence. Africans increasingly became concerned about New Zealand and started talking seriously about boycotting the Montreal Olympics. Countries pull out, and Muldoon, of course, then has this real problem. 
his policies have led to the first major boycott of the modern Olympics. By 1981, the Rugby Football Union were determined from the outset, I believe, that the tour was going to proceed. Steve Biko was a political activist in South Africa. Steve Biko, a leader of South Africa's Black Consciousness Movement, was arrested and later died in police detention. When he was buried, Steve Biko became the Martin Luther King of South Africa. There were 366 days in 1980 on which the Rugby Union could have made the announcement. The Rugby Union chose to do so on the third anniversary of the death of Steve Biko. John Minto. I was part of Heart and the National Anti-Party Committee. We thought that there was a, a very good chance that we would be able to stop the tour. And it was only really in the last two weeks when it became clear that the tour was going to go ahead. We started to talk about our policy, which was um, multiple simultaneous demonstrations. We wanted to stretch police resources. Non-violent direct action. We wouldn't support violence against people. That didn't mean that fences mightn't be pulled down or damage to property might occur. We said we're not going to protest against the tour, we're going to protest to stop the tour. You wouldn't see any circumstances under which you would ban the tour? Well, I don't think it will happen, let me put it that way, uh, in the way that you put it, I don't think so. I mean, if there was serious fighting or if there were confrontation, more confrontations, would you still allow it to go ahead? Look, you're getting far worse things happening in the back streets of Britain than we're getting in New Zealand. If Muldoon wasn't worried about fighting in the streets, the police certainly were. They formed two specialised police units called the Red Squad and the Blue Squad. They and other squads were trained for riots and crowd control and escorted the Springboks around the country. My younger brother Junior, who was also a police officer, was recruited into the Red Squad. National went to the election in 1975 promising that the Springboks would be welcome. A love of rugby was driving people into the apartheid camp. They couldn't even get within earshot of them as the plane was kept well away from the perimeter fence and any possible trouble. So the demonstrators, despite being almost outnumbered by the police, tried to remove the obstacles and get onto the tarmac. In the scuffles that followed, 25 arrests were made and two policemen slightly injured. John Minto. Nobody quite knew what the other side was going to do. In Auckland, we delivered 100,000 leaflets into letterboxes right across the city. And it was translated into, I think, seven or eight different languages, the Pacific Island languages and Māori. We got the most appalling amount of racist stuff sent to us. Just deeply racist stuff about Pacific Islanders, about Māori, and people furious that there was this, this multilingual thing that arrived in their letterbox from these people who wanted to stop the tour. I mean, people did things like went to the toilet and, and wiped themselves and sent the leaflet back to us in the mail. There was stuff like that. It was amazing. We as cops, we were going around doing warrants on these right-wing organisations who were threatening to attack the protesters. John Minto just lived three houses up from my parents. I was always worried that somebody would try and firebomb his place, miss the place and hit my parents' place. 
My father was against the tour, and he said to my brother and I, who were both in the police, you can't sit on the fence, you know, you've got to make a decision. And I said to my dad, Dad, we're not sitting on the fence, we are the fence between the protesters and these other people. Alec Tolio Four, my younger brother, he was part of the Red Squad. There was this terrible clash with my brother and his friends that he'd grown up with, who he'd gone to Sunday school with. On this occasion, they were facing off against each other. There was an understanding that my brother would need to do his job and his friends and that would need to do what they needed. In my family, there's seven of us. We all had different points of view. My sister in the police force, she was called back from her maternity leave to be physically there in the office and go to the front line. That I didn't find acceptable. They could have left her at home. But no, they called them all in. You know, I would say, well, you make sure you're not in the Red Squad and keep away from that lot. The Red Squad. One of their chants was R-E-D. R-E-D. Root more, eat more, drink more, piss. Root more, eat more, drink more, piss. Protest break-in at Hamilton's Rugby Park. Here's Graham Moody at the park. The demonstrators arrived at the ground just a short while ago. They marched past the main... Will Lola here, co-founder of the Polynesian Panther Party. When the Hamilton game went along, myself, Peter Satelli, who was Sergeant of Arms for the Hells Angels, and Hugh Lin, we actually was at the fence that got rolled over. We had big bolt cutters, we had carabiners, we had ropes that you'd clip onto the fence and pull the fence down. When we got there, the bolt cutters were, were, weren't needed, the, the carabiners weren't needed, the ropes weren't needed. People just with their physical bare hands just grabbed that wire. It peeled like a banana for about 100 metres and we just went straight through. We were going in and Hugh pulls me back. He says, hey, we're, we're here to study. So we stood there and studied the Red Squad. No attempt at all by the police to move them off the field. The group standing in the middle of the pitch, arm in arm. Got everybody standing up, linking arms. The crowd were, were chanting, we want rugby, we want rugby. And later on they were chanting, <laughs> there was chants of kill, kill, kill. And we were chanting, the whole world's watching, the whole world's watching, and hoping like frickin' hell they were. There's an announcement coming. The game has been cancelled. After that, we went back to the sort of headquarters in Hamilton, and there was a knock on the door. And these two guys came in, and they were absolutely furious beyond frickin' belief. They started punching and kicking and throwing people around. They were smashing furniture. I was thrown on the floor and I was lying on the floor and this guy was standing over me and he had a broken chair leg in his hand but his face was, was white, white as a sheet. He was looking into the distance. He, he, he couldn't see anything. He was just completely out of his tree. He dropped his thing and they left. 
that whole rugby generation just saw it as the anti-apartheid movement in the media and all these bloody stirrers fucking up the country. The feeling throughout the whole movement was if the Springboks are playing, say, in Hamilton, we're not going to all descend on Hamilton. We're going to have major demonstrations where we live to stretch the thin blue line. After Hamilton, the police felt that they'd been defeated and that they were going to deal to the bloody protesters. The protest in Molesworth Street in Wellington was just a regular protest at the same time as the um, New Plymouth game was on. Molesworth Street came as a total surprise. We hadn't expected that we would be told that we weren't allowed to peacefully march up the street to the South African Consul General's office. I was in the middle of the crowd. You could hear the noise. Batons being raised and coming down. There are people with blood streaming down their faces. Young people, old people, in total shock. I saw a couple of the young guys who were bruised. What happened to you? And they said, well, we were at Molesworth Street. They sported scars. I could see their blackened eyes. These were only young guys. They would have been about 20. I could see the pain in their faces that they were suffering. It was so unexpected and so violent and so unnecessary. This is New Zealand. We're in God's own country. This is a response to peaceful protest. It was only after Molesworth Street that we started wearing crash helmets to protect ourselves from um, another baton attack. It was certainly on everyone's mind as you went off to the next demonstration about what the response was going to be. After Wellington, Auckland's suburban streets were filled with tension ahead of the third test at Eden Park. Eden Park was going to be the confrontation. That was going to be the last game. From a rugby point of view, it was the biggest game as well. This was, um, it was one all in the test series. For us, that was just frickin' irrelevant. The tour, we'd gone on for seven weeks and people were tired and they were polarised and they were angry. And a lot of that got unleashed on that third test. Thankfully, I was on a day off, but I could see it from my home and I know the police were expecting it to be confrontational as were the protesters who had formed their own squads. We joined the Pati Squad, which was formed by Māori and Pacific activists. It was filled with people who were willing to lay down their life or go to prison. Pati's roots were in New Zealand racism. 
and a push for mana motuhake, Maori self-determination. Everybody was, was taught, come prepared, be ready to be arrested, have people who know uh, that you're going to be there, and they'll be prepared to set your bail. So don't worry about a thing. You set your mind on it and you know what you're going to do. Should you get confronted and, and you have to fight, and, yep, you do, you will. And you look around and will these people believe me? Will these people understand? Am I dying for nothing? The children will ask and say, what did you do? We were there. Panther Youth. We already had talks about what we'll do and you know, and the main aim was to get onto the field. You know, regardless of uh, where we're marching, we had to look for a, a weak point. But in the few days before, the police had turned Eden Park into an absolute fortress. The fence was double lined with number eight, fence and wire. And then they put um, containers all the way along. And so it was well protected, it was like having a little moat there. The night before, I had overalls and padded up. Fit, yep, good. Gloves, yep, good. Helmet, nah, it doesn't fit. Give me that one. Because I had dreadlocks then, you know. Now, make sure Shay is safe, he's over at Mum's. And I never thought about the consequences. If I get done, they'll do me Mum and Shay and everybody else, you know, who's involved in this thing. Didn't come into mind. You can't think about things like that. And it goes by so fast. In the morning, get our gear together, and we all walk over to Fowles Park. There's thousands of people doing the same thing. Everybody's got to go and congregate there, and then we'll decide who's to go where. There were three squads. There was, there was Patu, Tutu and, and Biko. Biko tended to be, tended to be, the marshals were students. Tutu squad, the marshals were church people. Um, and in Patu squad, the marshals were people like um, Polynesian Panthers um, and Māori activists. I was one of the marshals. The marshal points um, stands where the people can see all those that want that are prepared to go to prison. Where I stood, that was where the Patu squad is. Because we were ready to take the blows and give the blows. And we knew that a lot of the other people, and a lot of them were university students, they're not used to street fights and stuff like that, you know, but that's our area, that's how we grew up, you know. Um, and especially um, the white people, the Palangi people, the Pākehā people, they're soft as and gentle as, but their convictions, you know, about what was right and wrong, their heart is in it. So when it comes to things like the Springbok tour, who was prepared to go to prison? Well, that was us. We had mob, black power, headhunters, cases, all that, and one group on the same task. Never done before. And a lot of us were gang members, and a lot of the media thought, oh, they just want to fight the cops, but a lot of them understood the issues. 
And some people in the movement have said, oh, we shouldn't have, the gang shouldn't have been there. It sort of detracted. Well, the simple fact is that the gangs were there for the right reasons. I mean, I mean the King Cobras, for example, they turned up at protests with their own banners saying KC's against the tour. The word was put out, Patu Squad, you've got to be fit and fast and ready to go. Wherever the, the Red Squad is, that's where you have to go. Around Eden Park, there were six places where we had to blockade, and so each squad took two of those. There were some other activities that were going on, so there were people who bought tickets to go into the game. We had guys going in and out as so-called spectators and come back and give us the, the intel that the Red Squad was split the two. People going into Eden Park were carrying flares and they would get up to the barbed wire around the touchline and throw the flares onto the ground. We had some troops already camped in there and they were going to be the last smash through to the park. And in the meantime, uh, Marks Jones was planning to, to buzz the game with the, with the plane. He was driving petrol trucks at the time. He said, I want to talk to you about something. He said, oh, we'll do it in the cab of the truck. And because we were being spied on. But he said, look, I'm, I'm planning to do something, flying low over. Marching from Fells Park to Eden Park. Patu Squad started to go down towards Melbourne Street, where we thought that was the weak point of where the coppers were. We told the, um, the marshals and that kind of stuff just to keep police busy while we, we snuck down to Marlborough Street. Hit the cops here. Somewhere along the line, the plan for Patiscot to attack, everybody joined in. Unfortunately, people saw the action and came and followed us. The Red Squad were there waiting with batons and containers blocked off the street. And they were allowing people, the sports people to go in. But when they saw this big mess of people, you know, they just closed. Being a marshal, where I stand, that, that's where the group goes. If it's apartheid, you have to front it all the way, no matter what, all the way. Charge! And everybody's following us. Masses of people. All of us there in the front had shields. So there was a lot of banging, you know, and just took the blows. I was pretty well padded up. I had work boots on, helmet. But I could hear it. Man! Masses of people toing and froing, beat backwards and forth. So the barbed wire and the police and the containers. Yeah, no way. We got beaten. Pretty bad, and there was a lot of people lying on the ground and stuff. And the police got together, formed line, and just charged. And everybody just turned and ran. 
We regrouped up uh, Dominion Road. On our way, we ran into a, a group, Pake group, and they were singing hymns for heaven's sake. When they saw the Red Squad running towards them, they all moved to one side. There was like a hundred of them, and they just stayed on one side and just kept singing there. We run back up and get onto Dominion Road. And I'm running next to the leader of the King Cobra. Turn around. You know, I knew what he was saying. You fucking got us into this now. Get us out, you fucking. Okay, turn around. And the KC, they saw their leader and me, they all came and they turned around. saw the police coming up and they saw us. They turned around and they ran. As my first instance of counter-attack in a street fight. Usually we're running or we're, we're chasing. Mount Eden is full of scoria and their walls are scoria. <laughs> so these young ones, the cases, they were picking these big boulders. Red squad cops their front line start running towards us and then we start throwing all our rocks, the first rock, up high up in the air. While they were running with their batons and their masks, they looked up to see where the rocks were going and then we threw the second one straight through and started hitting them on their, on their helmets. Backwards and forwards, it seemed like forever. You know, we were fighting. They reformed, the Red Squad reformed, and we knew we couldn't, you know, bust through them again but we gave them a hell of a fright and a fight, and that was it. More reinforcements arrived for the coppers, and then uh, the ground and marks through the plane over. We saw the plane dropping the flower bombs. By the time anyone realised anything, they were in the air. Then the police were onto them, and they had the police helicopter following them around and around. And Marx was just being very provocative and saying, well, you know, we're gonna come in this time, we might try and land this time and dropping flower bombs, and the whole thing for the crowd outside was inspirational, and it was inspiration around the world. We go back to the park, Fowles Park, a kind of debriefing, but everybody's so high and tense, you know, full of adrenaline and what's going to happen next? Nobody's got any idea, nobody's got a plan. We'll go home and lick our wounds and just see what happens. Part of me knew the knock at the door would come. In the next episode of Once a Panther. I was looking at 10 years. My lawyers were saying, shit, well, you're going down. There goes the job. All the cops, they just looked at me and said, we'll fucking get you. We're all out here. Will I make it out of here alive? Never felt like a Kiwi anymore. I'm going to die in here. Once a Panther is a stuff podcast written, produced, mixed and edited by Alex Liu and Brad Flayhive. Additional creative input by Stuff's podcast director, Adam Dudding. Original music by Andrew Faliatua. 
Executive produced by Carol Hirschfeld. If you want to know more, head to stuff.co.nz forward slash oncepanther, where you'll find links to every episode, as well as photos, artwork and feature articles. You'll also find links for subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google and so on. If you're listening on Apple, don't forget to give Once a Panther a five-star rating and review. It helps other listeners find us. This episode included audio from Getty, the Merita Mita documentary Patu, and Archives New Zealand. This podcast was made possible with help from New Zealand On Air. Hi, Michael Wright here. If you're enjoying this podcast, maybe you'd like to check out one of our others. Collapse is the story of the CTV building, which collapsed in the Christchurch earthquake in 2011, killing 115 people. We have a building on fire with persons trapped that we're trying to get out. It's the story of one tragedy in a city full of them, about how a building went up. It shouldn't have got through council. How it came down. And this level collapsed first. The people who were saved. She went from, I'm going to die, to a realisation, I'm going to live. And the 115 who weren't. This is a grown man in tears because they couldn't rescue these people. It's also a story about a search for the truth. Why did one unremarkable office building in the central city collapse like no other? How did almost two-thirds of Christchurch's entire earthquake death toll die in this one building? And most of all, was anyone responsible? Go to stuff.co.nz slash collapse or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. If I don't get fire service here soon, they're going to die from the fire.